Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Happy Sunday, everyone. We are working our way through 7,000 ways to listen, and today was supposed to be the day when I talked about listening to other people. And I decided that that was uh, interesting. And uh, <laughs> actually, actually I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. About a year ago, I think, uh, we were using another book, and one of the segments was on listening. And for those of you with memories maybe even better than mine, we even had a handout. It was like this cunning little thing, like the seven steps for effective listening. And we, we talked about maintaining eye contact and paraphrasing. And, you know, it was almost more of a communications workshop than it was a Sunday talk. And, and I just decided I didn't want to do that today. So if that what you were hoping for, you're going to have something entirely different. I decided I would just tell one of the stories out of Mark Depot's uh, book. And uh, if you like it, we're all good. And if you don't like it, I know you're kind people and will be nice to me later. So, uh, so there you are. Uh, the <laughs> now, the story itself, though, is a little complicated. And so I need to set it up a little bit. It's, the, it's actually a story um, from, from ancient India. Uh, about the the god Rama. And so, you know, a lot of us aren't probably that familiar with Indian deities. So so bear with me uh, a moment. Uh, Rama was one of the avatars of of Shiva, one of the main gods. And as an avatar, uh, you might think it was kind of like Jesus. He, He to the god Shiva was kind of the relationship of uh, of us thinking of Jesus and, and God. And so having that position, uh, oh my gosh, the stories uh, that were told about his many powers of, uh, of raising the dead and communicating with spirits. And, you know, one story similar to Jesus walking on the water. Well, that was Rama too. And uh, uh, one story said that he could even fly. And, and, and so anyway, over the centuries after his death in particular, uh, all of these stories began to be collected about this, uh, this famous uh, Indian fellow. In fact, he was called Lord Rama, meaning uh, uh, Lord of all humanity, meaning that he was kind of the perfect template of what it was to be human, gracious, kind, patient, and so forth. All right. Um, because he was so beloved, especially in northern India, they began on an annual basis to tell his story. And they called it the Ramayama. So if you've ever heard that <laughs> phrase, I know it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. What that meant was kind of like our, uh, their version of the passion of Christ. So, you know, our holy week around Easter and, you know, you might celebrate Passover and all that stuff. Well, once a year, they did something similar with the Ramayama in India. And it became such a thing that a few thousand years ago, they actually had celebrations that in some cases would last an entire month. Many of them lasted a full week. Every night you'd go to the, the, the center of the city and they would reenact scenes from, from Rama's life, some of, the, some of the miracles that he performed, some of the, the story of ancient India as it unfolded. Uh, literally day after day, well, I don't have time to do that. <laughs> <laughs> 
But one of the things that also happened, have you ever noticed that sometimes when a story gets told over and over and over again, it gets better? <laughs> whether it's a fishing story or, or whether it's a story of your first date or whatever, after a while, other stories and other legends start cropping up around it. And so what I am going to do today is tell you a story about a couple who attended the Ramayama in ancient India, and it's an old folklore tale. So first of all, you need to know about the couple. He was a kind of a middle manager in business in, in his large city in, in northern India, and he had married kind of late in life, and so he had married into a wealthy family, family a very cultured young woman he was married to, and frankly, after about a year of marriage, she thought he was a little bit of a buffoon, a little stodgy, a little uh, unattentive. Like she wanted to enjoy the fine pleasures of, of the world and they had the money to do it. She wanted to be out and amongst the social stratosphere and in their town. She wanted him to participate in that, be more into uh, politics and culture and just, you know, the general life of the city. Whereas he was used to going to work every day, just doing his thing. Well, one day she has an idea. Surely through the power of the Ramayama, he will at least be able to take in that level of culture, that level of spirituality. Uh, he'll uh, be seen and, and, and she'll be seen with him and her friends will get an idea of them. And so she, what she did was, she actually went to the palace and bought the finest seats in the finest pageant, a four-day celebration of Ramayama that she could get her hands on. Front row, beautiful, amazing seats. She had the evenings planned, one flaw in her plan. However, as the time grew closer to the celebration, her sister grew larger and larger with her pregnancy. And in those days, of course, no hospitals, no real means for supporting newborns and their mothers except the family. And so sure enough, the day of the opening of the four-day festival, her sister gives birth and she's responsible for helping with that. Well, she's not giving up on her plan of culturing her husband. And so she sends him on ahead. And so after his day at work, he goes to the local place and, and, and has something to eat. And the service is kind of slow, to be honest. And before he knows it, the town crier in the middle of the square is yelling out at 7 o'clock. And he realizes he's late for opening night. And since his wife is going to be quizzing him, right, on the, the culture he's absorbing, he's like, oh, holy heck. So he races across the square, but as he enters the theater and looks out, it's packed. There's no way he's going to walk all the way down to the front row to get his seat. So instead, he sits way in the back in the real cheap seats. And frankly, in those days in India, the cheap seats were, were kind of more like a free-for-all, if you know what I mean. People are bringing picnics and throwing food at each other, and it's hard to hear the orchestra. And oh my gosh, not a good situation. But you know what? Frankly, he doesn't care. He sits down in his seat, and within about five minutes, he's sound asleep. <laughs> the combination of the music and eating too much and the, the, the kind of havoc going on around him, he simply falls asleep. 
and snores. <laughs> After a while, people begin really being bothered by the snoring and they're pelting him with peanut shells. And I mean, it's that kind of a section in the back of the theater, right? It's like Shakespearean times where people bring their animals and, and all kinds of stuff. And finally, one little girl crawls up in his lap and puts a piece of candy in his mouth. She's hoping that that will silence the gentleman. Well, it doesn't really do any good. And frankly, he sleeps through the entire performance. It isn't until the ushers arouse him that he wakes up and goes home. His wife, of course, quizzes him. How was the performance? How was the first night? Well, he's still tasting that little piece of candy in his mouth that the little girl had stuck in, and so he has an idea. He'll fake it. He says, oh, the story was so sweet. You would have loved it. The story of Rama, incredible. It was like a great delicacy. The performance was staggering, and the, the nuances of the characters. It had my mouth watering the whole evening. I mean, he's, he's laying it on but she takes it in okay. So the next night, he's off to round two, if you will, and I gotta tell you, he comes straight from work. He's putting in a lot of extra hours. He literally is at work right up until the bell rings, the town crier says at seven o'clock. He's late again, he's exhausted, and yes, you guessed it, he's in the back row, and he falls asleep again. So, so sound asleep, the little boy actually crawls up and sits on his shoulders to get a better view of the performance. And the guy doesn't even notice for two hours, this little boy sitting on his shoulders, watching the whole play unfold, the story of Rama night two, the guy doesn't even notice. Well, that night he gets home and his wife asked him, well, how was the show? How did the story of Rama progress? And he goes, Oh, not so good tonight. The weight of the world was really heavy, heavy on poor Rama. He felt like he was supporting the entire universe. You wouldn't believe the trouble that he went through. Oh, he says, shaking his shoulders. It's as though he had to support everyone. Well, the wife is beginning to think, you know, this is working out okay. He actually is learning something. He's participating. Not a bad deal. Okay, night number three. He gets off work plenty of time, but decides to have a little dinner and decides to have a little wine. So by the time he gets to the theater, he's having a little trouble navigating on his legs. Whether he wanted to go up front or not, the ushers put him in the back with the other rabble rousers. And, and frankly, by this time, the other people in the audience kind of have him pegged as a lowlife who goes to the theater and sleeps through it every night. So before too long, someone literally pulls the chair out from under him so that they can have a better seat. And there he is snoring on the floor. Well, by the time the ushers finally get around to him, he's kind of messed up. People have put uh, popcorn on him, and you know, it's like, it's like a, in fact, at one point, a little dog sneaks in and pees on his shirt. <laughs> by the time he gets home, his wife isn't falling for it, right? Beyond how he looks, he walks in, she smells the wine, and she smells the little dog. 
she gives him a piece of her mind and he has to confess the whole sad story of his inattention and being late and being drunk and not even sitting up front. But she has an idea. She's a forgiving woman. And so she arranges to have her mother come to look after her sister and the baby. She'll finally get to go at least one night, the last night of the Ramayana. And the idea is she'll be able to maybe catch him up a little bit on the story. She's a a cultured young woman. She can fill in the gaps that maybe he has missed. She also has a couple good ideas. One, she says, we're not eating until after the show. I don't want you all sleepy and stupid like usual, right? We're going to go to the theater first, food later. No drinking, and we're going to get there in plenty of time so we can sit up front. So they do. They're there, and I got to tell you, the seats that she had picked out, front row center, best seats in the place. And as the curtain goes up and they begin to take in the final story of Rama, she is blown away by the, the special effects and the costumes. It really is the best actors and actresses of their day putting on the story of Rama. The, even the set design and everything is, is stunning for the times. I mean, we're used to blue screens and all kinds of special effects, but, but even back then they paid attention to detail and from the audience quite a spectacular performance and the gentleman responds to it he really can hear what's going on now he's up front where he's supposed to be there aren't the distractions of the people going on he's not half drunk or half drunk on food right he's taking it in really enjoying it and they're at the famous part in the the end story of rama where the flying and it's true flying monkeys. I mean, I know it's only in The Wizard of Oz, but I think L. Frank Baum stole it from the story of Rama, because in one place, Rama has, well, and maybe, maybe the Lord of the Rings got stolen in here, too, because in one place in the story, the ring of Rama has to get across the ocean to be with his wife, where the kingdom will fall. It's like a ring of power, right? And so they entrust it into the flying monkey god. And so here, if you can imagine on the stage, they have a young boy dressed in a full monkey suit, right? With, with big painted lips and just looking crazy like a monkey. And of course, they've been rehearsing all year, right? They actually have him on a rope moving across the stage just like a flying monkey. And since it's supposed to be flying over the water, they've set up like a, like a pool in the middle of the stage and they're fanning the water. And I'm sure in like the third century, this would have blown your socks off, right? Everyone's, everyone's on the edge of their seat waiting for this climax. Well, they, the little boy uh, gets wheeled out on, on some kind of elaborate system and he's kind of flying out there with the gold, this large gold ring outstretched as he's moving off to, to, to see Rama's wife. And just as he's midway over the pool, he drops the ring. Well, I got to tell you, the show stops. It's like the narrator doesn't know what to do. This isn't part of the plan, right? The little boy can't retrieve the ring. He's stuck up on the ropes. Everyone is standing there. You know how sometimes when an orchestra can be cut off suddenly, it like is all wrong notes. And well, the orchestra dies. The place is deathly silent. And the businessman raises up out of his seat, 
front row center, climbs up on the stage, and forgetting that it's just a wading pool and not really the ocean, does the world's biggest belly flap into that little wading pool. And I gotta tell you, it's like SeaWorld. The water is everywhere. It's like the orca that beaches itself because all the beautiful young women in their saris in the front row, well, they are sorry because they are drenched. The flying monkey is covered with water. There is water everywhere. But the gentleman reaches down, pulls out the ring, hands it to Rama's wife in the story, goes, sits down in his seat. He smiles. Everyone, of course, is staring at him. He simply claps his hands. Let us begin, he says. And they have the best night of any performance of the Ramayama of all time. And in fact, that's one of the few stories of the Ramayama that's still told today. No one actually tells the story of Rama, or it's seldom told, but this story, they tell down through the centuries and across the globe, just as we have told it today. Now you may wonder why Mark Nepo included this in his book. It is, of course, on a gross level about listening, right? He had to be able to hear what was going on. He had to be fully present to be able to see what was going on. He had to do some preparation to get there on time so that he could enjoy the performance. But, but I think Mark Nepo included this story maybe with uh, something else in mind. Of course, he's a metaphysician as we are, and it's significant that the couple in the story do not have names. When you run across a story where the people are unnamed, a metaphysician will supply their own name. How are we like the inattentive husband? How do we find ourselves in situations where we basically sleep our way through it, where we're inattentive, where we really don't even listen to the people and the situations that are most important? How are we maybe overindulging in our senses to, the, to block out other things of more importance in the world? How, how are we not showing up in a way that is really listening to what's important? But the good news, we're also the wife. If you think about it, she too is not named in the story. And doesn't she know herself and her husband well enough to set up a good experience? She knows they need to get there early so that they can get their proper spot and, and be able to hear. She knows it's a good idea not to eat first, but to eat later. She knows that too much alcohol isn't going to be all that helpful if they want to really tune in and listen to the story. Between the two of them, I think they do represent Rama, the idea of the perfect human. And... The idea is, truly, you already know everything you need to know about listening. You don't need the list of the seven effective habits of listeners, and you don't need a point-by-point -point description of how really to tune into someone. You just need to know yourself well enough. You just need to know what level of energy and personal presence you need to bring to any situation 
to communicate well, to be heard, and to hear someone else. You already have that knowledge. And so I'd like you for just a moment to close your eyes, and I'm going to walk you through a short guided meditation. Just allow your mind to be quiet for a moment. Whatever issues you might have here at home, you can just put them aside for now. Now is the time of quiet contemplation. Just notice your breath as it comes through your nose and into your lungs. Just take a deep breath in and let it go. Another deep breath in and let it go. One more breath and let it go. I'd like you to imagine in your mind's eye the face of someone that you have trouble communicating with. It might be a loved one, it might be a boss, might be a neighbor, someone that maybe you've had harsh words with or someone that you go out of your way to avoid, someone who maybe you've miscommunicated with or quarreled with. Just bring that person, whether it's a family member or a work, work friend, just bring them into your mind so that you can see them clearly. It's unlikely that we will get through our lives by just ignoring issues like poor communication. And so I imagine that you will have some further contact with this person. And like the woman in our story, like the, the smart wife, I would like you for a moment to consider what you could do to be a more effective communicator with this person. And first of all, ask yourself, is there something that I could do or would do to set the scene better? Do I need to have more time when I'm this person so that I can attentively listen? Do I need to maybe have the room organized better so that we can be on the same side of the table or, or to be perceived at, at equal height from each other? Is there something I can do to put this person more at ease and to, to even out the flow of energy between us? Before we even say a word, how can I set the scene for the highest and best communication? And next, I'd like you to consider really listening, listening from the heart. Much in the same way that in our story, the man got so involved in the action that he was willing to leap up on stage and participate in it. What can you do in this relationship to really give that level of attention? What can you do to maybe feel the other person's point of view to have a sense of who they are and what they're going through? What can you do in your own way to, to make sure that you're hearing them correctly beyond just the words, but even what they're feeling or what's going on for them? What is within you that can really give that level of attention to this other person without even speaking a word? And finally, of course, words are important. 
just imagine the, the gist of the dialogue that you might have with this person, allowing them to feel heard even as you desire to be heard, knowing that the words that are chosen with love and compassion are often returned with the same kind of words. What kind of words would you use to bring about the highest and best interchange with this person? Of course, the conversation is in the future, but by setting this mental attention, by being clear in our mental equivalent of the highest and best for this conversation yet to be, I know that that's what you will achieve. Much in the way that the attentive gentleman ended up attending the finest Ramayana ever, so may you achieve the finest conversation ever with your estranged friend. All right, you can open your eyes again. I'm gonna to close today with just a, a simple quote, a simple summary, if you will, from Mark Nepo's book. He says, time has made me accept that I can't possibly know or absorb the oneness of all things by myself. In this way, listening becomes a partnership by which we listen and converse with everything. And this conversation comes with attention. It becomes the partnership by which we keep everything on the planet joined. So, I invite you into this conversation that has been going on since matter first conversed with space. I invite you to immerse yourself through words and beneath words in the deeper, fresher, fresher eternal ways of listening. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence, one, one life and one wholeness, one, one thing is all that there is, and I know that I am a blessed part of it. I know that I give my ear to truly listening to the universe going on around me, to the, to the people, to the situations, to the ways of being, to life itself, I listen. I know that this is what connects me to the entire universe, to my friends, to my family, to life itself, I listen. And as it is true for me, I know it is, it is capable for everyone in this room, everyone here can give their attention to the art and the power of listening, really checking out what's going on, listening beneath the words to have a greater understanding of, of some of the feelings and, the, and, and what's going on for other people, that we can, we can intuit our lives through this process, this amazing process of listening. And so I'm simply grateful for this grateful in the power and the presence of God in this world and grateful to be here to hear it. I let it be, and together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. 
Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.